You could say that, okay, maybe I don't know everything that's going on in the world, but I never knew everything that was going on in the world. And focusing on these things that are completely outside of my control and influence that might be two decades away anyway, just can't do it. I, I need to focus on what I'm doing right now. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Taylor, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, you know, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Well, I don't think I've ever met an ice cream that I didn't love. So this is a very tough question, but probably favorite for me for a long time has been butter pecan. Yes. So I, uh, I go through dating phases with ice cream. I'm never going to marry one. I just go through <laughs> dating phases with them. And I am definitely in a butter pecan phase right now, maybe because it's turning fall, but also the butterness of it. I can get down with it. I'm lucky Are that my, a- my wife is much pickier about ice cream than I am. So I get the runoff. So I'm in a good yes. spot. Yes. Now, are you a cone guy or a bowl? I'm not that picky. If I have a cone as an option, I'll go for it because I don't usually have cones at home when we have ice cream. If I'm out, I'll go for a, a cone because it's a little more rare of an experience. Professional. Got it. Got it. Well, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? So I'm a real estate investor. We're doing multifamily and self-storage deals all around the country. I work with investors to bring them into our deals, they're syndicated, you know, opportunities. We bring in passive investors to raise the equity, get the deal done. And uh, yeah, just continuing to grow, get things done, work with 1031 exchange investors all the way down to folks just looking to invest their retirement in, in real estate. Got it. Got it. Well, take us back. Where'd your real estate journey begin? I started investing in real estate. My transformation, if you will, started probably around 2015 or so. I had been investing in Wall Street pretty heavily, really managing my personal finances and socking everything that I could into Wall Street investments, sparked by an interest in the FIRE movement, of course, as many folks out there have heard about, and also from one of these books behind me that I read the second I got out of college and had a little big boy money, a couple nickels to rub together. I read The Intelligent Investor by Benjamin Graham. That got me started in value investing, really focusing on indexes. But I had done pretty well in that space by the standards of Wall Street, but I was ultimately extrapolating, seeing where it was going and not satisfied with with where I saw that taking me. So I started looking around for other options. How can I earn more? How can I build more wealth? I'd always had a bit of an interest in real estate, but I'd considered a lot of things. You know, once you get into this space, you can run into e-commerce really easily. Or at that time, I think there were people writing a lot of like poor quality eBooks and throwing them up on Amazon and you could make a little bit of uh, cash that way. And of course, there's always selling courses and stuff like that. But real estate just stuck with me so much because it's real, right? And we've all had experiences of, of course, living somewhere, living in a house or renting an apartment. You know, there you can't get away from the need of you know folks to have housing. And I just felt with those various e-commerce businesses that I looked at, it just felt so uh, temporary and ephemeral, but real estate is, is there and is real. So 
in that phase, exploring real estate, listening to podcasts at the time, of course. Now I'm a podcaster myself, so coming full circle there. Everybody was recommending this one book. As you can tell, books have been important to my evolution. And if you're looking at the video, I don't know if you use the video, but you might be able to guess what that book is. It's right over my shoulder, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the one that every real estate investor reads. Learned about the power of cash flow, started learning about how real estate investors don't just look for cheap opportunities to ride the market. We look for opportunities to create value in our investments. And that's what really, I think, just stuck me in real estate as compared to, say, the Wall Street investing, where you're buying something on the market and selling it back to the market. In real estate, we can go buy something off market that's severely underperforming and fix it up, do work to it, bring it to the market and realize a return, you know, as long as we do everything right along the way. And that just really got me started down the path of real estate investing, creating passive cash flow, working with others. Just there's so much to it that that got me so excited. And then the real work began. Got it. Well, um, not many people know the book, The Intelligent Investor, unless they have some sort of finance background. Uh, did you come from a financial background? Where'd you find that book? No, I have a degree in uh, chemical engineering. So that's you know the, the work I was doing when I was reading that book. And I honestly don't remember where I heard about it. It might have been at that time, especially through my senior year of college, I think uh, the timeline's a little muddy. Uh, because it's been a while, but I think I was listening to like the Motley Fool a lot, and yeah. I think they recommended the Intelligent Investor quite a bit. Um, I do not remember where I got that recommendation. It's a very dense read. I wouldn't necessarily yes. recommend it, even for folks that want to stick with you know Wall Street public security investing. It's a tough read, and even then, uh, so uh, Benjamin Graham was Warren Buffett's mentor, got him started, but. Warren didn't stop there with that strategy of, I think Warren describes it as looking for cigar butts on the ground and getting the last puff off of them. He met Charlie Munger, his current business partner today, and they started looking for much more attractive value opportunities and buying far fewer companies and far fewer stocks. So even then, Warren Buffett's strategy evolved from there. I think that gave me a great foundation to start looking for value to avoid the mistakes of trying to pick stocks. I think that was my big interest at the time. I wasn't, I'm, I'm a very skeptical person just by nature. If somebody tells me something they purported to be true, I kind of start with, I don't really believe you or you need to prove that to me. And I had seen, you know, we're all familiar with Jim Cramer, all the talking heads out there that are, you know, shouting about stocks and everything. And when you dig deeper and get into the statistics, those folks don't beat the market. I mean, it's nobody does really. And I think that like got me excited about that strategy in particular because I felt I had not cracked the code because there's not so much of a code there, but I had seen through the matrix, if you will, that, okay, these people who are trying to pick stocks statistically underperform and wow, there's a strategy index fund investing, really super low fees. Vanguard was growing quite a lot at that time with their low uh, fee index funds that kind of all conflated. And, you know, of course I had some money and it's, it's easy to buy in, right? Because if you have a couple hundred dollars left over a week per week from your job or whatever, you can place it in an index fund very easily. Whereas say with real estate investing, for example, it's kind of tough to do a deal 
with less than 50,000, you know, more is better. Um, so, you know, that makes stocks an easier buy-in at the bottom, but you know, I'm, I don't, I don't drink that Kool-Aid anymore, if you will. Yeah, I, I agree with you. It's a very dense read. It is one of the first finance books I read right after college as well. And because it was this idea that it was Warren Buffett's mentor, I was going to read it, devour it, and really understand how does a great mind think. I think you are right, though. Like The reason why you know the most wealthy hedge fund uh, uh, stock pickers out there is because there are so few of them. There are so few of them that can actually do it well. So when they do do it well, they're disproportionately wealthy, but there's so few of them. They're a lot more at the bottom end of the scale. But you mentioned like changing your view on how you were looking at investments from reading this book. How do you think that shaped your view on looking at real estate opportunities as well? Like, are there any things that you pulled from the intelligent investor that you use today uh, in the in your real estate business? That's an interesting question. It has been quite a while since I read The Intelligent Investor. It was probably 12 years or so since I read it, so I would say I don't quite remember the contents, if you'll bear with me. But I think looking for value is really really the point, and it's a completely different analysis that we do in real estate and in trying to find things that are undervalued or underperforming where they could be. So I think that concept of looking for value is very important. But in real estate, there are a lot of other things that we need to think about as well. We could find a piece of property that we believe to be underperforming. Let's say for the sake of discussion, we have exceptional evidence that this property could be performing better. That's not the whole thing. That's not the whole story. We need a team that can execute the improvement of that property effectively because, okay, maybe we have a great property in a great area, a great deal at a great price, but if we don't have a team that can deliver, then we kind of don't have anything in the first place. So there are different moving parts, different to, things to think about in real estate. I suppose you could say if you're trying to like pick stocks, if we're drawing that analogy, I think some folks will look at like the C-suite. You know, the CEO's great, he's brilliant, whatever. How much pull those folks have, I'm not really sure. The team's influence in real estate is so much more real and relevant to the performance of a real estate deal. And there's just a lot more to think about in that regard. There are a lot more uh, knobs we can twist, you know, buttons we can push to make a deal perform or to set it up in the way that we want to finance it in the way that we want. There's just so much that we can do that you have to think about that you don't necessarily have to think about in a publicly traded investment. Yeah, I, I I mean, again, it's been 15 years since I've read the book as well, but I do remember them talking about this idea of looking for how do you value a company and then you're looking for things under that value where you think that it's underpriced. And it's similar in real estate. What we're looking for is underperforming assets that we feel like we can pull the value back up to its market price um, or what it should be trading at. So uh, that's uh, one thing I remember specifically really about the book. Yeah, but once you get beyond that, it diverges i think pretty quickly and it gets very dry quick it is it not a it is a good uh, book to read before you go to bed um so you mentioned in your introduction that you do multifamily and self-storage um i'm interested to hear kind of your evolution it seems like a lot of folks start off in the multifamily space and then work themselves into different assets um was your journey similar to that did you start off in the multifamily space i did yeah i started off in multifamily at the time, 
you know, it's interesting to think back about the amount of information that was available in this realm of real estate investing in the say commercial real estate space in 2016 or so compared to today, it doesn't sound like that long ago, but there just wasn't as much out there in 2016 about say self-storage. There might've been a book or two that you could find on Amazon, but most of the more prominent books you can find today, I think were published, you know, 2019, 2020. So most of the info that was out there was around multifamily. It's a bigger market. People are more aware of multifamily investing. So that's probably what kind of got me started in that space. And then once you dip your toe into the waters of syndicated real estate, okay, now we're talking multifamily, we're talking self-storage, mobile home parks have grown up quite a bit industrial, you know, land development. There's just so much to it that for a lot of people, myself included, multifamily serves as a, you know, way to get your foot in the door, if you will. I still invest in multifamily happily. That's still the vast majority of my investing in the deals that we do. So I have, certainly haven't gone away from it. I just, after getting exposed to all the asset classes that are available, decided I wanted to start adding other things very carefully, but adding other things and getting back to the team aspect. When I was looking for other investment opportunities, I had built a relationship in, I think it was 2017 or 18, started building a relationship with a newer team uh, with great folks who were building their business and starting to get into the self-storage space. Now, newer team, even if they're great people, can be a bit of a red flag to think about. They had worked together before, but they had done kind of a, a hodgepodge of different things. They'd done some mobile home parks. They had done some flips. And eventually, they decided to 100% focus on self-storage. So I let them do a few deals. I sat on the sidelines watching them do deals. And again, I had been looking for investment opportunities. And they presented one to me after having done a few self-storage deals on their own. And I said, all right, I'm in. And I invested and, you know, it's gone well. I've gotten more into this space, you know, myself. I, I guess I'm somebody who, when I want to get into a new asset class in real estate, I first take some of my capital, passively invest it with a team that I feel I can trust, see how that goes, adjust, learn from there, talk with experts who I know, and then continue to grow and move forward. So do you passively invest as well as actively invest right now? Yeah, I do. Why, why do you do that? Um, I get as, so I do the same, right? I don't, I invest outside of our own deals, but I always get asked that question. Like, why do you passively invest? Why aren't you funneling all your money into your own deals? So there are a few things to it. Self-directed retirement accounts. You can't invest them in your own deals and you might as well have them invested somewhere. So to me, that is a source of capital that I still want to have invested in good deals and real estate deals that I believe in, and I can't put them in mine. So I think that's a great way to align interests and build a connection with someone you might already know, a team you might already know, someone you'd like to do business with. That's been beneficial for me, finding people that I like, that I'd like to invest with, and I have capital that I can't put in my deals by you know 
statutorily, you just can't do it. Um, great way to build that connection, to learn how they do business, you know, get on their investor list. You can learn things about what they're up to because you're going to start seeing their deals and that helps you keep a pulse on the market. So self-directed retirement accounts, I think a great way to, you know, as long as you understand all the risks and everything, great way to place capital with others that you don't maybe have the internal conflict of, wow, what if I put this in my deal? Well, I can't. So I can put it with someone else and not sweat it. Gotcha. So is that how you kind of learn? You said that's how you learn the self-storage business was through passive investing in that that asset class before? Yeah, that was my, my first foot in the door to start learning things. But there's a limit to what you can learn as a passive passive investor because you're not in the trenches you know, doing the deal. You can pick things up. You can see how it goes. Uh, but you're not, again, participating in, say, like the asset management calls or planning. You know, you're just kind of watching things as they unfold and, frankly, learning if you pick the right opportunity and the right team to invest with. So it's a great way, I think, to start learning, but there is a limit to how much you can learn as a passive investor. What is it that you liked about the self-storage space? So first off, there's... Lean law. It's lean law, not landlord tenant law. So when somebody stops paying, you can't kick them out immediately, depending on your state, but it's relatively quickly. There's not a big headache to get somebody out that's not paying. So that's a big one. I started in self storage before COVID. So, you know, before the eviction moratoriums popped up, they turned out to not be quite as bad as some of us kind of expected, but still the fact remains, you know, we need tenants and renters to be paying rent. So that was very big. Um, secondly, there's, I still see a lot of opportunity in the maturing self-storage industry because pretty significant percentage of the properties out there are owned by mom and pops. They haven't modernized with software packages. They don't have their units on the internet available for rent. They don't have their rents at current market rates. Oftentimes, Older, you know, retired mom and pops who own properties as a source of income makes a lot of sense. Their goal is just to have income coming in the door, not have headaches. Makes a lot of sense. But we're looking to maximize the value. So we want to push rents. And sometimes pushing rents means compromising occupancy, right? If you're at 100% occupancy, then you're probably not maximizing your rents. A lot of times, most of the time, those mom and pop owners. They value the lack of headache and the income coming in the door, so they want to remain 100% occupied. That means they're not pushing their rents. They're not staying up with the market. They're not maximizing the value of their properties. And that, to me, still represents significant opportunity in the self-storage market. And that's why I initially got in, and I still see that happening today. How do you how do you view that decision on whether to push rent or not? Because I I completely agree with you. There's a math way to do this, right? If my occupancy level drops by five percent, I but I'm receiving X number over what I was getting for rent, then mathematically it still makes sense. But there is an emotional side to it. And one of the things I always talk about in personal finance is there's math and then there's emotion. And what you should do is a blend of both, not just one or the other. And so I know when we're doing syndications and we're doing deals, we're running a business. So we need to think about the business first, but how do you, how do you think about that when you're um, 
taking over a property on where is that level that you can push rent? So look at market rates, you know, what will the market bear? Of course, that's very relevant. Um, you know, I think when you're getting into that discussion, that, you know, it's kind of if you're trying to make like a moral or ethical argument and where ethical, the ethical price is or not, is more relevant potentially in multifamily than in self-storage. I, you know, I don't have a lot of stuff myself. I like not having stuff. I don't think I'll ever have a self-storage. So I don't, um, I don't lose any sleep at night about raising rents on self-storage. And I don't think anybody else should either. That's, I don't think that's controversial, right? It's just, it's just yeah. stuff on the yeah, other side. I, sorry, go ahead. I, I, I agree with you. Like morally, I'm not concerned because it is just someone else's stuff. Um, it's not a place that they live or food or, you know, just different things like that. I guess I'm talking about more from a business standpoint. So mm. you see that you're renting out at 950 and the place around the corner is renting out at a thousand. Do you go straight to a thousand? Do you go to 975? Do you have a conversation with some of the, uh, the occupants first to just kind of get a gauge? Like how do, how do you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. And a lot of the pricing today, especially in multifamily, is algorithmic. So your management mm -hmm. software is really deciding on a, you know, hour by hour basis what your rental rate, you know, should be, what you should be um charging, you know, people who get into your properties and sign a new lease. When it comes to, say, a property that's getting nine fifty and the property down the street's getting a thousand, if I don't know if I don't own the one getting nine fifty right now, and my potential upside is a thousand. I'm not interested in that property. That's not enough potential upside to justify what it's going to take to get in there. So I want much more margin on that, much more room to raise rents. And accordingly, to do that, we're going to have to invest equity in these properties to fix up and improve the interiors and exteriors to make tenants willing to pay more. That takes time. Turning around a property in that way can take a couple of years. You don't want to let your occupancy fall too far. So, you know, that takes time to execute on those renovations. Um, you know, raising rents over time, I think the the algorithmic pricing models do a pretty good job of keeping you at market and maximizing that income. Um, but I, you know, I try to keep emotions out of the investment side of things as much as possible personally. I think folks get in trouble in that way. When it comes to personal finance and do I want to buy this thing or not buy this thing, then I think emotions become a bit more relevant to play in. Will this you know, widget make my life easier? Will it make me happier? Will it make my office look a little bit nicer? And will I enjoy looking at it? Whatever it is. Or am I just kind of feeling a little bit bored and feeling like I want to spend money and I need to be aware of that emotion? I think that's more relevant. Um, I was on a bigger pockets thread uh, recently where the original poster was saying that I'm looking at buying this property. There's 80 something units. And if I buy this property, I will be financially free. This is the one I'm looking for that will get me to my freedom number if everything works out the way that I expect. Then he went on to discuss the deal. My conclusion from the deal was that he was massively over, over leveraging in his business plan and taking an outsized risk, in my opinion, because he was so excited to potentially get the deal done. He could reimagine that deal, bring in equity investors, have more cash in the bank for a potentially rainy day down the road. He was also 
mis misprojecting some things as far as his uh, refinance proceeds. He was using an 80% LTV. I'm not seeing any 80% LTVs in multifamily today. It's 50 to 60% pretty much is what we're seeing. So he didn't really have some of those numbers right. And if he just went into, went into it with all this debt leverage and using his credit cards and everything to get this deal done, when in a couple of years he goes to refinance, if those metrics haven't changed, he's going to really regret doing that deal because he got himself into it for emotional reasons because this is the deal that's going to set me free. But if he doesn't go into it with you know his eyes open, with the, the blinders off, then he's just setting himself back financially. If he partners, partners with somebody else, brings in more equity, okay, maybe this deal gets you 70% of the way to financially free. Isn't that a lot better than maybe finding out in two years that you hugely over leverage this deal and you can't refi out your 10% private money lender? I mean, that's way worse. So, you know, emotions and investing, we got to be really careful with those. Yeah. And I think it's always important when you're looking at a deal like that to ask yourself, why are you excited about it? To your point in this given situation, it sounds like he was at the finish line of his financial independence journey and wanted to cross it so bad where it's okay if it takes an extra year to get there as long as you get there. Hey, fellow investors, before we dive into our next segment of the show, I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about a fantastic opportunity for you to invest with me. As you know, here at Ice Cream with Investors, I'm passionate about real estate investing and helping you navigate the exciting world of wealth creation through real estate. And that's why for the first time, I'm thrilled to tell you about an opportunity for you to invest alongside of me. Over the past three years, I've been investing in multifamily, mobile home parks, car washes. I've even become the bank and lent out money to fellow real estate investors on a short-term basis. And now you can come join me. If you'd like to jump on a call and learn more about this opportunity, head to icecreamwithinvestors.com slash invest and find a time for us to connect. And now back to the show. And I don't blame him at all. I don't begrudge him. You know, I think it's very reasonable to be in that position saying, this is the one that I need. This is perfect. And there were some very serious upsides to the deal as well. He had a really interesting seller finance opportunity. The seller was willing to carry a note for seven years at I think six and a half percent if memory serves, which is really not bad with a seven-year note. Pretty good. 30-year amortization, which is nice on a larger multifamily property. So there were certainly some positives to the deal. He knows the area very well as he's already invested there. A lot of positives. But the downside, you know, the, the emotion can force you or compel you to ignore some of those downside risks when you know, if you step back from that emotion, you can try to focus on mitigating those risks, still getting things done and achieving anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned um, in your intro that you guys are kind of looking all over the country. Is there a specific buy box that you have when you're looking at self-storage facilities? So I like self-storage facilities, 50,000 square feet or more, value-add potential uh, with the ability to expand on the property. Generally, that looks like having extra empty space around the property still you know, within the parcel that you can build onto. Now, there are local supply and demand factors that are very relevant in self-storage. Now, they're relevant in no matter what you're investing in, but self-storage is much more radius-dependent, one, three, and five-mile drive radius-dependent specifically, that if you're oversupplied in that area, then you probably shouldn't invest there. You definitely should not look to expand there. 
interesting things have been happening in self-storage generally since interest rates started going up. It's really slowed down the self-storage market a lot. It's made borrowing a lot more expensive, obviously. Construction rates are still incredibly high because, you know, inflation, everything that folks are well aware of. So I've seen deal flow in the space really slow down. You have to bring a lot more capital to the table. It takes longer to get things done. Rates being so much higher, that's a lot more expensive. So, you know, the industry, I hate to say it's in a bit of a lull because demand is still very high. Just when the numbers don't work out for interest rate or construction cost related reasons, just is what it is. You can't get carried away with that. Just react to the environment and, you know, keep moving forward. Yeah, we're all in a price discovery stage right now is what I think. A lot of people are seeing what their properties were worth at the end of 2021 and want to sell in 2023 and still think it's worth that. Um, And they're not pricing in the additional interest cost, the additional uh, labor cost, all those sorts of things. Rents won't continue to grow at 20%. Heck, in some places, you're lucky if they can grow 3 to 5%, which is typically normal right now. So I think what's slowing down everybody more than anything right now is this negotiation between buyer and seller on what's this really worth. Uh, And we all think it's worth higher or lower depending on where we're at in the market. Yeah, we are seeing now it's not a good time to be a seller, kind of no matter where you are, honestly. And, you know, I wouldn't want to have to sell right now. We are seeing sellers who have to sell right now. They're in a position because maybe their rate cap ended earlier this year. They can't afford to buy another one or maybe their value add plan failed or was never really executable in the first place, if you will, if I can make up a word. Uh, they're more willing to do a deal today. You know, something that occurred to me recently, and I've had a few conversations with, with folks about this, and maybe you can shed light on it. Early this year, there was a lot of conversation about rescue funds. Oh, we're going to put together a fund that's going to be rescue capital. We're going to find these distressed operators in whatever commercial real estate asset, and we're going to really wheel and deal. We're going to get a good deal for our investors in this rescue capital fund and, you know, bail these folks out. And I was just thinking recently, uh, I was having a conversation with a fund manager the other day, and I don't see that happening at all. I don't see any rescue capital deals happening. The funds may be out there, but I think there's a few very important reasons for that. If you have a deal, if a, a property owner or syndicator has a deal that is distressed, it's in a pretty bad place and they might not even be able to make a deal with a rescue capital fund that would make sense for anybody. If the value-add plan has failed so much, debt costs have changed, and the value is now worth, the property is now worth less than the note, then who cares about your rescue capital fund? The deal is underwater. It's, it's dead. And I think that's possibly happening more than some folks like to admit. Additionally, I think raising money for a rescue capital fund is probably pretty difficult compared to raising money to buy deals that have already been foreclosed. If I'm somebody that wants to invest in a deal that was distressed, I'm much happier to buy it from the bank than I am to partner with somebody who already failed in this particular property because that's what you're doing in a rescue capital fund. So I think it was a interesting idea that folks had, these rescue capital funds. I think in practice, 
they're not going to take off because it's so difficult to do a deal and almost everybody's incentive or best interest is served by not doing a deal in that way. Too many moving pieces. You know, I don't know if you've seen that happening though. Yeah, I tend to agree. I've seen about two transactions where a quote unquote rescue capital fund is coming in. Um, I have also seen a few operators raise rescue capital funds to rescue their own deals. Um, I think lastly, it's very important that if you are an LP in a, in a deal where they are getting rescue capital deal, that the operator notifies you of that. And I'm worried that that's probably not going to happen. There might be some people that take on additional funds and basically they're just recapping the deal and not telling their LPs that now they have a preferred investor in front of them. So it will be interesting. There was an article on LinkedIn this morning that I did not read, but saw the headlines of a big um, syndicator out on the West Coast that was able to recap a lot of their deals with their um, lenders. And the thesis was that lenders are willing to take uh, a different term on the loan to not have to take back the property. That's so true. I, I, I like my grand thesis in all of this is I don't know what happens next year in 2024. I think with an election year and trillions, I think it's $7 trillion of loans coming up for maturity in the next two years that you are going to see some new financially in, engineered product come out that's going to help smooth this out. Now that could be extending terms to 40, 50 years. That could be uh, the Fed pulling the plug on raising their interest rates. That could be another version of quantitative easing. There will be something that happens out there that does not let the real estate market fail, at least in 2024 and 2025, and allows it to be kicked down the road for several years while we kind of work through the higher interest rate costs. Not a huge vote of confidence, if I have to say. Even even having that conversation, having that that might be a possibility. you know, like like I said at the early part of our conversation, real estate will be will still be here. People will still need it. I will still be a real estate investor in the future. So those interesting times, you know, will be profitable for somebody, and I intend to be on the winning side of that. On the rescue capital front, hopefully, you and I can have a, a non recorded conversation. Maybe you can share what you know a little bit. Very curious. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the last thing I'll say about that is, man, in 2020 and 2021, the U.S. Treasury should have come out with the 100-year bond like it was floated. Because <laughs> if we had all of our governmental debt on 100 years, 0%, 0.5% interest rate notes, things would look a lot better, I feel like, in, uh, in terms of the federal budget. I'll leave that there. I agree. <laughs> That was that was a that was a bait. (laughs) No, I think that is that is big trouble. I mean, I'm I'm a millennial. I'm 34, right? Um, I don't see how. I mean, there's big trouble in in our lifetime. They can't keep spending this money forever. But the dollar still is the reserve currency of the world. Will it stay that way forever? I have absolutely no idea. Um, I'm a fan. I like to listen to Peter Zihan. If you've ever seen him, he's yeah. been on YouTube. Yeah. He's written a bunch of books. He's got a lot of very interesting things to say. He's very much so bullish on the U.S. for geographic, uh, macroeconomic, population growth related reasons, a lot of positive indicators. I think for the person holding cash in the long term, 
they're going to be in a tough spot. I don't know that we'll be in a, you know, 9% inflation rate environment in the long term, but inflation in general is a fact of life when you have a fiat currency. That's why I like hard assets, but we have to be able to hold them and cash flow them. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, big fan of Peter Zion. I found him in 2019 when he was doing a lot of his demographic tours. And uh, I do appreciate his bullishness on the US. I also think that one of the things he's calling out that no one else is calling out right now is that when you reshore all the jobs that we have offshored for the past um, 50 years, that will cause inflation. You will have more demand to build new product, which unless supply increases on par, which historically we've seen over the past three years, it takes a minute for supply to increase. That will be inflationary. When you take a $5 job and move it back stateside and it costs $30 an hour to do, that will be inflationary. So again, I, uh, I think for the next probably three years, we're behind this inflation cycle, but both candidates and all the candidates out there right now are saying reshore, 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 which will have a natural tendency to be inflationary if I had to bet. That makes sense. I think if, you know, he, he gets into talking about uh, demand and supply related causes for inflation, or am I thinking about, it? I might be thinking about somebody else, but there are, you know, I think it's going to be a good, uh, we, I think we do have a good future here. I think there's a lot of, um, if you will, uh, the, the term, you know, red pilling or black pilling going on about how doomed things are. And, and this is something that I've been thinking about a lot recently. My uh, family and I, we took a vacation for a week to Hawaii. I live in Virginia. We flew all the way over to Hawaii and pretty much unplugged for an entire week. Now I do check my emails. I talk to my investors. I got some phone calls from investors. That's fine. I get those things handled right away. But as far as the news cycle, as far as the you know YouTube kind of rabbit hole that you can get sucked into, I've been doing some work prior to that to unplugging myself. But after the experience of not being exposed to any of that, to any of the, you know, 24-7 news network, but for the millennial generation that doesn't have a TV, but does have a phone with YouTube on it, I think the more that I unplug myself from those things, the more productive I am, the happier I am, just the better I feel in general, the more optimistic I am about the future. You could say that, okay, maybe I don't know everything that's going on in the world, but I never knew everything that was going on in the world. And focusing on these things that are completely outside of my control and influence that might be two decades away anyway, just can't do it. I, I need to focus on what I'm doing right now. Absolutely. I uh, I took a trip to Italy a couple of years ago and <sighs> um, was in a small town where like no, I didn't pay for the phone service and there was only one coffee shop that had Wi-Fi. And you want to talk about like re-energized and refocused and clarity and all those sorts of things. And uh, I listened to a Tim po Ferriss podcast back in like 2017 where he said, I don't listen to the news because if it's really important, people around you are going to tell you about it. Yes. And if it's not, then it's just noise anyways. So I, I subscribe to that. We don't we don't listen to the news. We don't watch the news here. Um, I do read a lot of things, but uh, it's not like I'm out there consuming clickbait as much as I can. Right. You're going to get the important stuff. It's going to come up. Somebody will tell you. And you can focus on you know niche news and like real estate. Like I saw one, the SEC charged an alleged Ponzi scheme the other day. You know That popped up because that's in my sphere and it's something that I you know, talk about on my podcast, for example. But as far as the yeah the rabbit hole, I, I think 
the more I unplug myself from it, the better everything is really. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Taylor, fantastic conversation. I want to switch us now to the last round. We're calling this the four toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? So this is hard. This is really hard. Um, one of my favorite books is, uh, on the shelf behind me, crucial conversations. I read that in my mid twenties, I think. And it came along at a time for me when I needed to improve my communication in tough situations, which is what that book is really all about. So that was very, uh, very important for me in the vein of things that I've been quote unquote reading, if you will, lately. So I've taken that former, you know, YouTube or news cycle nonsense time. I've replaced that with things like Jim Rohn. I like Earl Nightingale. I like some Tony Robbins stuff, but some of those things that are more, you know, like empowering things to put in your mind, even if I'm not engaged listening to it at any given moment, I think it's just better noise to have going on than, uh, you know, the negativity. Yeah, I love some Jim Rohn. It's been a minute since Earl's gotten a shout out on the podcast, though. So uh, good job. The Strangest Secret, man. Things. That one's Strangest Secret. a classic. You got to go listen to that. Very old school. Our second one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? This is a hard one. So you sent me these questions ahead of time, and I've done some thinking about them. And this is a hard one to come up with an answer for. I think a few are really stick out to me that people think about you a lot less than you think they do. They're really not thinking about you very much, which once you accept that gives you a lot more freedom to, you know, be real with yourself, do what's important to you. And then also I mess up the exact quote, but most of your problems are in your head. Most of your problems are imagined. And the more you can remember that when you're struggling with something, maybe a, a deal falls through. We had a, I had a deal fall through last week, man, I was beating myself up about it. And then I just remembered that I'm, you know, imagining the problem on I'm imagining what went wrong. The thing that went wrong was out of my control. And all I can do is learn, react and move forward. Focus on the positive. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I love it. I wish I could add something, but I love it. Our third one is what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? This is another really hard one. So I did get married earlier this year. It's very important to me. Uh, my wife and I, thank you. Wife and I have a, a house we're, we're very proud of, and we bought that at the time when everybody was buying houses, it seems. So uh, we got that. But but having created a life that I'm, I'm genuinely happy with. So the this is a terrible uh, comparison to draw, but if you'll, you'll bear with me, um, the SEC... The, the Ponzi scheme person, alleged Ponzi scheme person that the SEC just charged um, was raising money and just keeping it basically for these deals, apparently, and spending them on lavish lifestyle, buying a truck, renting a mansion, like all these things. And, you know, none of that appeals to me at all. I have a life that I'm very, very happy with. As I grow and build more and more wealth, I you know, my wife and I were just talking about this. I don't really want a nicer house. I don't want a nicer car. I don't really have a fancy car. I don't care. It's more about building that wealth, building that passive income, finding a way to give it back. But the the idea of like inflating a lifestyle just to put it up on Instagram or something like that, if I do ever have a really fancy car, nobody's going to know about it. 
but I probably won't because I just don't care about that stuff. It's more about achieving and doing deals. It's just the rush of getting those things done. So I'm, I'm just proud of having kind of created a, a life that I can be so like, feel so comfortable with that I'm not worried about like chasing stuff like that. I am very proud of you for not ending that, uh, story poorly because when you started off by saying I got married and then and quickly moved to an analogy of a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> I was a little no, worried for your answer there. You see a lot of these folks that, you know, in, in real estate, a lot of people are genuinely very wealthy in this space. And, you know, I've got a lot more money now than I, than I used to. Right. And I could be flashing it around to some extent, but I just, I don't get the, the need to be out there flashing your, you know, your cool car, you know, Aston Martin, Ferrari, whatever, you know, if I ever get to that point, you're never going to see it. It's going to be, you'll see it if you see me out on the road driving it, but I don't even know if I would buy one if I did get to that point. But just the, that showing that stuff off, I would kind of rather just donate it or give it away or hang on to it, keep growing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, our fourth and final one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? This is another really hard one. So Jim Rohn would be uh, great. He's really gotten more relevant to me uh, lately as I've gotten more into his content and have seen how much of an impact he had on other people. And he's passed away, so I don't have that opportunity. So I might as well go for somebody who's dead um, or one of the one of the Stoics, you know, Epictetus or Marcus Aurelius, you know, one of those people who lived at a completely different time going to have to take a couple minutes to explain to them what ice cream is and a couple hours to, you know, maybe we can teach them some English or something. No, no, no. We have a freezer. (laughs) Put it in the freezer. It's incredible. Yeah. 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 Folks like that. Well, Taylor, fantastic conversation. If our listeners wanted to reach out to you, learn more about you or get connected with you, where is the place we can point them? Sure. So check out my podcast, the passive wealth strategy show. You can learn about investing with us at investwithtaylor.com or passivewealthstrategy.com. And I have a free seven-part video course on red flags in passive real estate investing. You can get by going to passiverealestatecourse.com. Perfect. We will leave those in the show notes. And then Taylor, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.